We're putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay. Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers, united we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our... Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And it's greetings from Creatures of the Industry, brought to you by the Concrete Gang and the CFMEU with the assistance of 3CR. And today, we're again back in Melbourne. We've been around the world a little bit over the Series 3 and uh, now we're on Series 4 and we've been to Balan to talk to Paddy Hanapy and today, Inverloch came to Melbourne. Good morning, Fergal Doyle. Good morning, Ralphie. How are you, son? Very well, Ralph, very well, and thanks for the opportunity for, for having me. Now, let's talk about the Fergal Doyle story, because it didn't start in Melbourne. It started uh, on the banks of the Leafy. It did indeed, Ralph. Uh, it started off in a little house in Ballyfermer, in Dublin. Dublin. Uh, the locals would refer to it as Ballyar. It was the fourth child. In the family, the, f- the fourth boy at that time, we had a two-bedroom corporation house. And, um, I was the first one to be born at home. My mum said she's experienced enough, she didn't need a hospital, so I was born on a Friday Friday evening in a two-bedroom home in Ballyfermot. Two more came along after that, and we still lived in the two-bedroom home in Ballyfermot down the road in Coymore Avenue before we... Um, we got a little bit of a luxury and uh, did a little transfer to a place called Coolock on the north side of Dublin. And uh, mum and dad uh, appreciated the extra space with the six kids running around, you know. So that's, that was my start to life, you know. And what was your start in the industry? In Dublin? Yeah, uh, um, the... the Horse sort of experience on the building side, so I was what was known as a nipper. And when I was 14, it's the same today, you believe. It's, yeah, you have uh, during your school holidays in summer, you have June in secondary school, you have the June, July, and August off. You have, you have a great uh, 12, 13 weeks off. And um, my granddad got me a job as the nipper as a 14 year old in a place called the Sandyford. I used to get the two buses there in the morning and 
used to put the kettle on and clean up the place. And as far as you'd call me a junior Peggy, you know, and uh, go for the messages for the boys and, and then do a little bit of uh, in the afternoon to help the granddad with some joint and the brickwork and bottled around the site. And that was probably my first introduction to, uh, to a man's world, actually. Just sitting in there, I won't call it a smoke, I said, because it wasn't. But just sitting there amongst, uh, you know, adult men listening uh, very eagerly to what was being said. You know. So, grandfather in the industry sounds like family had history. Um, we have a lot of history uh, on my mother's side, which is the O'Brien side of the family. My grandfather used to say, and the wonderful thing about the old days was that you sort of fitted in an extra generation. You know, my, my grandfather was became a grandfather at 42, and um, they started off young then. I think he became a dad at 19 himself. But he used to say he was the fifth generation bricklayer that he knew. Mm. And I know his father was a bricklayer. Unfortunately, his father passed away at, at 36 years of age, you know, from um, rheumatic fever um, and pneumonia. And... Um, that's uh, that's something that he talked about. But yeah, we in those days to get into the the bricklaying, especially my grandfather's time, um, it was very much a family affair. It was still sort of part of the old guild system where you know to get into a trade was always good if you had a relative already in there. And um, so, our union in Dublin goes back to sixteen seventy. It's called the Ancient Guild of Incorporated Brick and Stone Layers Trade Union. Used to be in Cuff Street in Dublin. My, grad, my grandfather was, was very uh, much a trade unionist, staunch, you know, a very political person too. And um, my, his two sons were bricklayers. My uncle Jim, he was in Australia, and uh, my uncle Bill. And uh, Jim used to be the secretary of the sub-branch in Dunleary for the Brickies Union, and uh, Bill... Uh, sat on what we would call the Committee of Management for many years of the Bricklayers' Union in Dublin. So I sort of had that, sorry, in the DNA, you know. And um, So uh, I always remember when uh, sort of August was coming up that year, when I was 14, I wasn't really looking forward to going back to school in September. So <laughs> I said, I really like it here, you know, wearing a few bob and all that. He says, how old are you? I said, I'm 14. He said, tell that mother of yours to buy you some good steak and come back and see me next year. <laughs> so I said, to her, if she buys me a steak, she'd have to buy everybody a steak. That's not going to happen, you know. So anyway, yeah, the next year in, in September, actually, I started my time with him. So he was, he was 62 then, I think it was, I was 15. So um, that's sort of where I started with the. Um, so we started the, with the first job we were doing was a was a, uh, a convent for the nuns. The nuns always had plenty of money in Dublin. You know, they were very. Um, if you want somebody to look after your money in Dublin, the, the, the nuns were, were great treasurers. You know, so that was that was my first sort of real brick uh, line site on the um, first introduction to the. Um, to the trade, really, you know. But I, I do remember the first morning, because the job was just starting, and there was really nothing much on the job. And uh, we had this, it was, it was, I reckon it was a cold shed. It was just this timber old shack of a building with 
dark and had to open the door to get a bit of light in. The granddad says, um, now, son, put your bag on the on the nail in those rafters, he said. Otherwise, the rats are going to get your lunch. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. And, uh, that was the introduction to the, the, the working conditions at the time, was suppose, that by, by force, real smoke, I was said, in the industry as a, as a, as a full-time uh, worker, you know. So... Uh, I'd like to think that, you know, both in Dublin and in, and in um, Melbourne, we've, we've come a lot. That was 1979, so I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not talking about the 30s or the 50s here, you know, I'm really, it's very close to the 1980s I'm talking about. So, you got the apprenticeship? I got the apprenticeship, uh, and the apprenticeship went on for a little bit longer than, than your average, because there was a lot of unemployment at the time. My grandfather was... He had the back like an S hook, and he had sciatica down the leg. And, he, and at sixty-two, and he was been in the industry for since a, since a boy. You know, he's he was in a bad way. So we're in and out of work a bit. And um, but what uh, I, I stuck at it. it took me an extra year, but I stuck at it, and I got the city and guilds, and, and I got did my national certificate, senior certificate, and junior. You do your junior certificate after two years. It was a four-year apprenticeship. In Dublin, I think it still is a four-year apprenticeship. That's over here, it's only a three-year apprenticeship for the bricklayers. But yeah, at the, at the fourth year, you, you did this six-hour task. It didn't matter what you did during the year, but to pass the practical examination to actually get your national certificate, you were given this sketch, and you had six hours to build it. So it was it was fairly around. It was, it was fairly... Uh, pressurised and for him because you had one chance and, and if you failed it, you had to wait a whole year to do it again, you know. So I was lucky enough to to pass and, and uh, you know, get get me papers, which I've only actually ever needed twice in my life. The, and, and no employer really has ever asked me uh, for, for bricklaying papers, apart from um, once to, to come into Australia, I was, I was asked if I had qualifications and and I had to put that as part of the application. And then when I, later on, when I was uh, a couple of years, I did a, was a, a teacher, uh, like a trainer, for the young bricklaying apprentices working for the BIG, the Building Industry Group training scheme, who was uh, always asked if I had qualifications. A uh, controversial little period in the history of the industry. Well, we, we might deal with that <laughs> down the track. So you got your, you've got your trade papers, and you're in Dublin. You are going to get work as a tradesman bricklayer. Well, two days after, I must have, it was three days actually, I decided that I had enough of being in and out of work. And I, I jumped on the, the boat and went to London. So what would it mean about been 1985, so I would have been 21. So yeah, I, I went to jumped on the and um, decided there was there was a lot of work for brickies in in, in London, and um, so myself and the, and, the, and the girlfriend at the time, which is which is me, my wife now of course, and um, she was just three days into our 20th birthday, and I was. Uh, was 21, so we decided to, what, what we used to refer to 
back in the old days in Ireland that we, we ran away and lived in sin together, you know, in London, you know. And uh, it was actually amazing at the time how much walked the was. And the, the only difficulty I experienced, you know, was actually uh, people thought I was too young to be a bricklayer. I had a very baby face and the old freckles and red hair. And uh, I just looked to, in the eyes of a of a Cockney foreman, I was too young. To, I couldn't be a bricklayer. But I soon explained that I've been, I'm 21, I've been doing it for six years. And uh, you can always, if you reckon I'm no good, you can always sack me. But, uh, you know, I'd like to think it was, uh, I took uh, great pride in the trade. We're obviously... The responsibility of all those generations that went before me, you know, I was keen to be a very good bricklayer. You better defend the, the family name. Indeed. Now, you're in London. What sort of work were you doing in London? You know, laying bricks, obviously, but yeah. what's the sort of construction or building sites you were on? Mostly at the time was... You used to have sort of breeze blocks inside and, and, and red, what you'd known as common reds outside. And um, for a lot of industrial stuff, you'd, you had what's known as flattens, like nine-inch flattens. You'd build a lot of walls, nine-inch inside, you know. But, um, so, but there was a lot of walk and um, you'd actually pick and choose where you wanted to walk, you know. We just lived in King's Cross for a year and, and that was very central. You just jump on the tube. Uh, they go anywhere, you know, it's, um, it was interesting times. The safety wasn't very good and, uh, you know, the organisation wasn't very good. I, w- I was in UCAT when I was there, but uh, the union wasn't strong. We, had, we didn't have much representation on the sites in, in, in London in, in the mid-80s, you know. And, um, you know, but interesting, interesting times, nevertheless. Uh, Maggie Thatcher was in full swing at the time and, so you ended up working with it was pretty much a divided nation in that a lot of the wealth was centred around the southeast of England, particularly in London. Um, but there was many Scotsmen and, and Liverpoolians and, and Geordies from Newcastle working on the sites in um, in London at the time, and uh, you know we we all got on very well together. You know. So at what point in this? Uh Big city with plenty of work. Did you decide you're going to come to Australia, or is it just the fact that you're in King's Cross, which was a bit of a sanctuary for Australians in London at the time? Well, it's um, I actually never felt that at home. Sort of, the uh, I always felt as if you know, England was a foreign place for me, and we just used that as a as a stepping stone. And, um, we always wanted, like we were young, we wanted to travel. There was always this thing about, you know, have trail, will travel. I was very, very young and we were curious and interested in the world. And we decided to use London as a, as a sort of a base, you know, and um, we saved up hard. The two of us, we just lived in a, in a one little room flat, you know, and uh, we, we saved hard and we, 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 should be, we wanted to go to us. We decided to come to Australia. I had an uncle in Australia at the time, so... After a year in London, we, just, we, we came to Australia and we, we uh, first of all, for about six weeks, we, we stayed with my uncle in Canberra. And I did lay a few blocks on the, the new Parliament House, that was 1986, you know. And then um, after 
After experiencing the nightlife in Canberra for six weeks, we decided to head down to Melbourne. <laughs> well, after the uh, shining lights of London, uh, Canberra in the 80s was not exactly excitement plus. Yeah, well, there was more exciting places to be. <laughs> Indeed. So you wandered down the Hume Highway to Melbourne at, straight away, or...? Yeah, yeah, we did actually, and uh, we actually, I mean, obviously, when we landed, we landed in Sydney, and we had a great look around Sydney and beautiful, beautiful city. But for some reason, and when I was talking to the smoke, I said in, in the Parliament House and saying to the boys, I was was going to Melbourne. The, um, they were more Sydney sort of centric, and, and uh, said, "What are you going there? We should go to Sydney." I said, "Yeah, we're well, sort of being to Sydney." I said, "Just want to go down to Melbourne." I felt as soon as we got here, for some reason, I just felt, you know, just a place for us. We just love the place, you know, still do. Could this be the weather in Dublin ain't much better than Melbourne most of the time? <laughs> you felt at home. Well, that was, uh, no, the, the weather was much, you know, if you, you start laying bricks in Ireland and in, uh, in Dublin in January and February, especially after Christmas, you know, there, there is a big difference between uh, walking there and walking here. You know, I mean, we, it's uh, it's very it's much more pleasant here than the, um, the the weather. I got to say. So you got to Melbourne. What year was that? Eighty six. Was eighty six. So September eighty six, and uh, I we landed up on a, a job in um, in Flinders Street. I was trying to think about. It. I think it might have been a lightness job. And now Fitzy was the shop steward for the BLs. Uh, so the street could it have oh, it was, been? It was in between Queen Street and Spencer Street. It was it was a car park. It was all white bricks. There was a gang of us. It was all bricks, no panels in those days. And there was yeah, there was half a million bricks in the place. There was a huge amount of bricks, million bricks. It's uh, there for yeah, there for for months, you know. And that was me. That was me introduction to to. Trade unionism, really, even though you know the, the, the trade union was there in, on, on Parliament House in Canberra, and they had the BWIU. But um, yeah, obviously before before I got that job in Flinders Street, um, I had to go around to Drummond Street and um, join join the Bobs, the VOBS. You know, they had a little house there as their offices, and um, so yeah. But that was me. First introduction, really, an understanding of of, uh, of what was happening. I was student at the beginning, I think, of the D-Reg at the time, you know, and um, it, was, it was interesting times to be, to land in the city, you know. Yeah, so with Brickies, just not everyone understands uh, the complicated arrangements for unions in the industry, but uh, the BWIU uh, would be... Uh, the case for probably since the 50s were part the the bricklayers unions in a number of states absorbed into the BWIU, but Victoria always remained uh, separate. There was a state registered union, mm. the Victorian operative bricklayers. So you would have been in the BWIU in Canberra yep. and come to Victoria and join the VOBs. Mm-hmm. How did that seem? Well, I was only here for a year. And, and during that year, I did a lot of travelling. Uh, it's probably seen more of Australia that year on a working holiday than even though Melbourne was the base. Um, 
but it was you mean it was it was a bricklayer society uh, and the sort of the, the most interesting characters to work with were actually the brickies labourers you know I always found them to be very entertaining at the time and um, they, they, there was a sort of a difference in character between the brickies and the brickies labourers I thought you know, I was uh, the the brickies were you know a bit more sedate and measured and you know, probably a bit more conservative in their thinking, and uh, and especially the the BLs, the Brickies Labourers that we had on that particular site. You know, they were very, very passionate about the union. They're very union orientated, and, uh, and there'd be that, some names there that yeah. you could remember who were yeah, uh, well. The, the, it was Nigel and uh, Nigel and Frank uh, lived up in Reservoir Way. They were the first Brickies Labourers that I. We used to have a. We were living in Preston, so we used to have a few drinks along, you know, along the way, on the way home. But uh, they started to give me a bit of a, you know, the history of the BLs. Whereas um, the Brickies, the Brickies were a society, you know. They were, were and they they didn't have uh, they didn't have branches. They had lodges, like they had the the Bendigo Lodge and they had the the uh, the Ballarat Lodge and, and the Geelong Lodge. So there was a very strong um, stonemason sort of element there, you know, historically, you know, going back to the 1850s, you know. But um, I've, I sort of haven't mentioned that during my, um, my apprenticeship in Dublin, there was probably another apprenticeship going on that I was... Uh, I, I got involved with my own union and we created, uh, through the trade skill, we created a sort of a... Unemployed sort of apprenticeship network, you know, mm. and uh, there were interesting times. So I, I, I felt very comfortable, and it was great to see trade unionism in action on the building sites because there hadn't really been in in, the, in England, you know. And uh, during during the course of the apprenticeship, I, I had joined in Dublin. I had joined Labour Youth, and we were, we were very active. Um, you know, I got very politically involved in, the, in all the usual things that was happened in the, in the early 80s. You know, like, um, you know, we had the miners strike happening. You had, the, you had anti-apartheid rallies. You had a campaign for nuclear disarmament. You know, you had uh, unemployment issues in, in Dublin. Um, so there was, uh, you had the, the Nicaraguan um, people come over for, for a bit of, Support, you know, the Sandinistas. Sandinistas, and um, you know, we used to go to see a folk band from Chile. You know, there were refugees from Pinochet, so you know, I spent all my apprenticeship years being involved in the, in the trade union labour movement in, in Ireland, and um, it just um, it was great to come here and sort of uh, see that actually in action on, on the building sites here. You know, so continuing down this little digression a bit in your life history. The industry. Um, how different did the industrial scene in Melbourne appear compared to what you'd experienced in Dublin and in London? How much was the same and how much was different? Well, in Dublin's a smaller place and, and if your family have been connected to a trade, it, it's probably like here, you know, you, you, you know the families, mm. you know, and, um, and you've got that connection with the union. You know, it's, uh, it goes stay for generations. You know, we talk about uh, our union in Dublin being around since 
1670. So you got all those traditions, and, and, and there's always um, a great um, oral history going on when you speak to the older ones. You know, you know, my grandfather had to, you know, basically didn't see his family for the best part of six years because he had to, to earn a quid, he had to go over to England during the war. You know, so, my mother tells stories about from the time she was six to she was eight, you know, and, and so probably the same as, as a lot of children in Europe didn't see their fathers for or during the course of that six six year war, you know. So, um, so th- there was a bit of a difference in in England because in Ireland you had a union, mm. in England you didn't have at the time, but UCAT wasn't really on, on the ground or didn't have no influence. On the ground, but then coming to Australia again, there was a contrast again. It was a connection back to Dublin and, and trade unionism and organisation, representation, and the union having a bit of influence. Where on the building sites in London, unfortunately, there was there was no influence there. Now, brother, your uh, experience in Dublin in the uh, political sphere. You've mentioned Young Labour and uh, or Labour Youth, I should say, and you outlined one of the disputes that they had supported and the outcome of that uh, dispute, uh, which led, to, as I understand it, to the banning of South African imports to support the fight against apartheid. But can you just explain to me and obviously to the listeners what Labor Youth was, who sort of formed that group, what its objectives were and what effect it had on your life? Well, Labour Youth was essentially the youth section of the Labour Party. So if you were under 26, 26 and under, I think, and you were a member of the Labour Party, you were also a member of Labour Youth. And Labour Youth had different other leaderships over its, um, over its time. You know, um, at one stage, it, it might have had a more conservative leadership. In, in, in my time, we had a more militant type uh, left uh, leadership um, that really shaped its direction and, and work. And, um, so the, the effect of me of being uh, active in Labour Youth um, was really at such a young age. Basically, the, that was uh, my political foundation, if you, if you will. You know? And um, I definitely do recommend if anybody's... Uh, uh, you know, interested in, in the Dunn Stores dispute, uh, a documentary called Blood Fruit. It's actually an inspiration, the, the dispute was an inspiration to the dispute. Uh, Labour Youth were only bit players in the dispute, even though we were very helpful and did collections and all that for the, for the workers and participated on the picket. Uh, the, 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 the walk, uh, and it was 10 women and one bloke. Uh, all the heavy lifting was done by the workers themselves. They get all the praise for 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 the dispute and how long it went on, and just a principle disciplined over a long period of time, which which changed things. So, um, so all during that period, it sort of led that um, workers have enormous power if they if they choose to use it, you know, um, and they sometimes underestimate the power that they have. And with a bit of militancy and a bit of discipline and organisation, you know, you can you can shape outcomes. But of so, course, um, it does take support from other people. And uh, Labour Youth sounds like it was a very supportive organisation for 
not just young workers, but for workers generally. And, and did they get themselves involved in more than just that dispute? Did they actually uh, have a program of solidarity and that, or was this the yeah, sort of was, the notable uh, one? Yeah, that, that was only one dispute. I mean, we, I mean, the type of things you'd get up to with the... Uh, we also... A miners' strike was going on at the same time, of course, in 84. And um, so we used to do collections for the miners, you know. And those are the type of things, really, uh, that, that we did. You know, got involved. There was always something happening, always something to be done. And, um, you know, you're, you're participating in that, making a, making a contribution, you know, for the, for the greater good, you know. So when you got to Australia, you were ready-made. Well, I was, uh, well, I was sort of felt in love with the place, uh, having the politics that I had, and, and then learning about the traditions of um, of the building unions and the politics they had. You know, whether it's the BWRU traditionally or, or the um, or the BLS. You know, they, 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 you didn't you didn't die wondering where they stood. You know, politically, yeah, there might have been a difference between. And interpretations, you know what I mean? One was uh, close, closer to the, to the, to the Maoist, and the other was, was closer to, to, uh, to, to Moscow. But in the end, the, the, um, you know, I, the way I felt about it was that they had good working class politics, and you knew where they stand. Uh, you, knew, you know, they, they had a long tradition of, of, uh, of fighting on behalf of, of workers. It was all black and white in many ways. And... Um, you know, I, I just, uh, and of course, like, being being here in '86 during the D Reds, I just felt it was the the place I sort of belonged to, you know. So, uh, and uh, you know, I could see that uh, it was a country where workers had a voice and workers had some influence, you know. So, so moving along, you've hit Melbourne. It's the deregistration, yeah. a period that uh, has been reflected on in these interviews. Uh, for creatures of the industry across uh, quite a number of people. And I might say quite a number of the people interviewed started off as Bricky's labourers. In fact, it's surprising how many started off as Bricky's labourers because that was the way you got into the industry and uh, there were two avenues, basically Bricky, Bricky's labourer or concreter. Nowadays you've got precast, you've got off-site uh, manufacturing, all the rest of it, and uh, you've had a bit over the years to do with uh, precast, and it has certainly turned uh, the industry upside down over an extended period from the 80s. Um, but you had to go back after 12 months. I did, yeah. I wanted to stay. I was actually working for a fellow called Billy Phillips, and, and he, you know, he, he treated me very well, and um, we got on very well. He was quite willing to sponsor me, you know. He was crying out for brickies at the time, but I went to the... I don't know where I went. I must have gone to the immigration department. Um, and they said, no, no, you, you actually have to go back and reapply for a permanent residency. So I went back to um, went back to England uh, for 18 months. Lived in sort of south-east London, a place called Peckham Rye and New Cross, Dulwich, storage around that way. And... Um, then came back in April 1989, you know, for good this time. <laughs> <laughs> now, 1989, that's three years down the track from D. Ridge, which was yeah. early uh, 
86, the not only the deregistration but also the derecognition of the of the BLF, the carve up of its membership, uh, the police enforcing that on site. Uh, I don't think people quite understand how very difficult and complicated that was, and how many people were actually on the grass for years. But by '89. Uh, there was a bit of a boom going on. There was, well, I know for a fact I was working for Leighton's and we had, I think, six jobs all going at the same time in central Melbourne uh, and down St Kilda Road. But that would have been a contrast to 86. How did you fit back into the industry at that time? And given the recession was just around the corner, how long did it last? Well, sort of the... the, the thing I remember, obviously, from, from the first year here was the contrast between when I started on the side down there in Flinders Street where Fitzy was really looking after everybody, even though he was the BL's shop steward. But he looked after everybody on the side, all trades, you know. And uh, sort of one of the last memories I've got working on the side was um, old Fitzy being chased around by coppers. You know, that was before I left. And, uh, and then another you know organiser <laughs> introduced you know we had a meeting when this was all happening about Fitzy and um, this organiser from a different organisation came down and introduc- introduced this very old carpenter on the site no disrespect for the, for the age but he, he'd been on site for a long time and he never said anything to anyone and, um, the official introduced him as our new shop steward <laughs> <laughs> and we all sort of looked at each other and just, you know, we all shook our heads so, I mean, obviously we were a lot of us were bricklayers you know and, but um, personally um, you know I, I, had a, I had a very strong view about what was happening to BLs even though you know I made, I left and came back afterwards not because I wanted to leave but to me it reminded me of um, you know I, I said to myself I've seen this heap I've seen this before you know I've seen this happen before. But actually, something very similar happened in Dublin when the bosses all got together and decided that um, they're going to lock out members of the of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union because they didn't like the leadership of, of Jim Larkin. Jim Larkin's probably one of the, the greatest. I mean, it was Jim, Jim Larkin and, and James Conley. Uh, just going back to Jim Larkin for the moment. Um, who led the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. I mean, he broke away from the union in, in England and um, established a fairly strong militant union in Dublin. And um, now I could see that the members of the union would have had the same passion as the members of the BLs. And it was basically that the bosses didn't mind trade unionism as such as long as it didn't ups- it wasn't upsetting them. It wasn't too effective. You know, but... Um, Jim's union became very effective on the ground. There was a lot of uh, a lot of places getting blacked until they improved things and people joined the union and the wages improved. But in the end, the bosses all got together and basically uh, locked out the workers and gave the workers a choice. You either resign from the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, excuse me, the union, or you, um, you know, you didn't, you know, if you want the job. Just get rid of your union ticket, you know. So I, well, I was, or cop the blacklist. Cut, and, and many, many did. 
many many in Dublin uh, you know found it very hard to walk after that lockout and um, some uh, some joined the British Army because it was the only way of of getting the quid for their families you know in 1914 so after that after that massive blow so I, my sympathies were with the BLs you know from a historical point of view and uh, the passion I've seen on building sites that the the, the, the workers had for their union with the BLs, or, you know, wasn't wasn't matched with the passion of other trades, you know, for their union. That's the way I felt at the time. So you've come back in '89. The world's been tipped upside down a fair bit, and uh, there was a boom going on. Yeah. <coughs> well, the first thing I noticed was the. Uh, was the lack of representation on the site, you know, from sort of having a strong leadership there with Fitzy in, the, in Flinders Street. Um, that didn't exist in 89 when I came back. Uh, that, that representation wasn't there, you know, that influence day-to-day on the job wasn't there, you know. So, But there was, there was plenty of work, and uh, I worked on the first job I worked on was the Scotch College Junior School out in Hawthorne. We did a, another one of the extensions there again for Billy Phillips, the same boss I had before, you know. And uh, so yeah, but um, it was actually in 1990 that I uh, I became um, I became a shop steward and, and an OH&S rep for the for the British Union. I was on a job in um, in Separation Street and High Street in Norcott. Was uh, Norcott Plaza? Yes, indeed. And um, it was a CE job. Uh, the, I always remember um, it was the result of an accident, actually, a bad accident, um, and it was relating to one of our one of our crew was was Kenny the the, the Brickies labourer. Um, we hadn't been on the job for long at all. I don't think we'd been on the job for for two weeks. It was only a small group of us there. We had a lot of work to do, but we were only starting off. And Kenny seen a nice piece of ploy, an eight by four piece of ploy. And, uh, and he picked her up and walked forward, and then he disappeared, and the, the, the piece of ploy landed in the same spot, but poor old Kenny fell down into the basement and landed on air-conditioning ducts. And this is what he told me when I visited him in the, the Austin Hospital, the spinal unit, you know. And um, because we didn't actually see it, because I mean, he just disappeared, you know, one minute he was there, one second he was there, and he Second, he was gone. So he told us what happened, you know. So uh, yeah, like a piece of ploy wasn't. I mean, there was a penetration, was, you know, handrailing, kickboards, and cordoned off. Nowadays, you know, but they just threw a piece of ploy on the ground, didn't even nail it in, it, you know. So uh, and Ken never really walked again after that in the industry. Couldn't I mean a bricky with a with a very bad. He injured his back very badly, and, uh, and as you know, a bricky's labour with a bad back doesn't have much of a future in the industry. So what happened was um, Huey Harkins and, and uh, Herbie Valentine, I don't know, you probably know Huey, you're probably, probably less familiar with Herbie, but um, they come down onto the site, you know, and obviously you get the call, one of our, we call up the British Union, let them know, you know the ambulance is coming and all that sort of thing. Anyway, I was a bit surprised in their reaction because... He actually gave us the biggest bollocking of all time <laughs> during the course of a meeting when we got the troops together. Uh, I, was, 
Well, turn around to, uh, and they were giving us a bollocking because they had to walk the job while the troops were in the sheds. And they went impressed with the job, but we'd only been there for a couple of weeks, you know. So, uh, we basically were given out to us for working on a job that was so bad, you know. So, uh, particularly uh, Huey was doing most of the talking. And uh, he got forward up, Huey. And, and everything he said was honest and truthful. But he's basically saying that if you want this job to improve, you've got to do something yourselves, you know. So, anyway, there wasn't too many in the gang, so the boys said, I think you, you need to put your hand up, because uh, the union was insisting that we'd have representation on the job, you know. So, that was when I put my hand up to be the, um, the shop steward for the Brickies Union on the job, and the... Um, health and safety reps. So that was my start of representing you know, represent workers in the industry, you know. And then Huey organised me to be do a bit of training at the Trade Union Training Authority at the time. That's another story <laughs> That's a, all of its own. So anyway, so I got... Uh, Perhaps we should just... <laughs> people won't understand why we're having a laugh about all this, but the Trade Union Training Authority was a Commonwealth government initiative by the Whitlam government all the way back in the 1970s, which existed for probably well over 20 years, and its role was to, in fact, provide trade union activists and officials with training to make them able to deal with an increasingly complicated world of legislation and laws and all the stuff that was going on which was changing the industry in big ways. Unfortunately, it's not for today to get involved in all the, um, the toings and goings around that particular institution, but it was on the, its headquarters was actually on the corner of Drummond Street and Victoria Street in uh, South Carlton, and it had a... Uh, Clyde Cameron College originally up in Wodonga and people would go away and stay there. But you went to South Carlton, I would say. Yeah, South Carlton, I think it was around Drummond Street at the time, yep, around that right way. Right on the corner. Right in the corner there where the old, I think this uh, Inco link, around that way was at one stage, yep. I think, around that way. And the sea bus was not far up the road, Jack Smarton, I think. Yep. In those days, um, around that uh, around that spot, anyway. Um, but I should say, I, I should sort of go back to the to the to the job and the for, for just for a moment to say that when we did a safety walk, when, when Ken was got, got injured on the, that particular job, we, we we did a safety walk, and uh, I remember distinctly there was a hundred and two issues we we had down on the safety walk. It took the walk, walk took a couple of days to deal with. We were in the shed for three weeks in those days. In those days, you, you couldn't relocate to another job if you were in dispute. So, yeah, that was another first introduction to a, a decent size, you know, blue. And but if you wanted to get paid, you certainly didn't relocate. No, no, we all got paid, yeah. No, was, that's what yeah, I'm saying. No, but yeah, you did, you yeah. That was there, the there was no question about, yeah, no, was, we, and we didn't have to go on through to get the pay. The pay was, the, the pay was, was, was always going to be there. I mean... I mean, you had the DLI, uh, I think it was John Stone at the time, um, he, he he documented everything, I mean, he, everything that was on the list was on his list, and 
and there was enough ammunition there that you know the CE and, and the job was such a disgrace that uh, you couldn't you couldn't defend it anywhere. You know? So the people were the workers were going to get paid. You know, so that was that was the start of it, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Brian Conwell copped a, a whack. Yeah, look, and deservedly so. But I mean, but the, the thing about it was, this, why was the job so bad? And one of the reasons why the job was so bad is it didn't have much representation on it. You see, it got to that stage, you know. But um, yeah, so in the end, we we actually we actually basically had to take over running the safety on the job, you know, because we've lost all trust with management, and we, we basically well, that's what. Basically, what Huey and, and, and Abby were saying, you know, that if you want something, don't do it yourselves, you know. So that was the great, great lesson. And so you cleaned the job up. Hmm. You stayed there till the end of the job? Or? Yeah, no, seen at seen the end of the job. It was a decent size extension to, to, the, to the plaza, if it wasn't the, the most earliest part of the plaza. It's hard to, to remember now. Um, but, yeah, it, was, it would have been 19... 1990-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1989-1
for whatever reason, and I didn't understand it at that time, the different politics that was that was at play and the different personalities and that and allegiances. Um, but there was a strong push at that time, 1990, that we actually should get all the craft unions together and all the trades, if you look, and then uh, form a, a different union than obviously what the CFMEU became at the time. But um, and that went on. That went on for a, a year, probably a year or two. I remember we we had the we had a union office in, in Neville Hills Shopping Centre. Do you mean the the BWU had their one? Um, we had another one, and uh, we put the craft unions on the door. And some some bright spark just put a Y at the end of it, you know. <laughs> uh, well, it's probably a Libra. Anyway, there's probably a lot in that too. Yeah. So, Endeavour Hill Shopping Centre, you finished the job? Finished your job, and during the course of that, Jordan, I went on for a while, that one. Jeez, uh, there was an awful lot of disputes on that job, and for all the right reasons. Um, and uh, it was a very enjoyable job. But during the course of the end of that job, we, we were losing we were losing troops, and not just because of the job, there's nowhere else to, to go. And um, and that was when you were beginning to see So I think I survived till early nineteen ninety one, and then then that was really bad times in the industry. I found myself out of work. Well, the only time I found myself out of work since I've come here, I've been out of work since. But nineteen ninety one, the start of nineteen ninety one for me was 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 uh, probably the most difficult time to to get a job. You know, so I was out of work for. Out of work for 10 weeks, I think. I did a few little, what we would call nixers back in the old country. Uh, cashies, you would probably call them here. Oh, cashies, yes. Well, <laughs> uh, to get me by, you know, um, the good wife uh, was was working in the ANZ bank at the time, kept us going. Uh, we had just bought a two-bedroom unit in the Bayswater. Yeah, so that's, so I don't know, a 17% interest rate. So just... I think we just moved in there a couple of months and then there was, there was no work, you know. So interesting times. I think people uh, sometimes uh, forget when they go on about uh, baby boomers getting all the benefits, trying to meet uh, 17% interest compared to what's, what's, what is it now, 3.5% or 4%. It doesn't, it doesn't gel, sorry. <laughs> Well, I think but you, uh, you managed to survive. And yeah, as you do. As you, well, I would say, I'll put it to you, that uh, building construction workers are probably pretty good at surviving because that's what you learn pretty early on. Yeah, I think if you, you know, coming back from my background, you, 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 you're always resilient, you know. You, you learn how to deal with adversity and res, you build up resistance along the way, you know. So, but uh, yeah, and I was lucky enough then. I got a, I got a job actually. Uh, I got a job for a couple of weeks. Um, I think old Norm Laurie. I was working with the, the subcontractors association through the union. Had a little chat with Don McKenzie, and uh, well, give me a start. You know, I got a job there for a couple of weeks. You know, but. It's definitely only a fill-on in with Don, and uh, I was lucky enough to. Um, there was a shutdown happening in the the old uh, 
down at Spotswood on the glass tanks and Spotswood. Oh, the Australian glass works. Yeah, ACI, you know. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to, and I, and I haven't, I haven't said too much about, you know, me, uh, me apprenticeship days in Ireland, but. I actually got an opportunity to do a lot of refactory work in Ireland, which is fairly unusual because there's not much of it because we don't have much industry. Um, but I, I, sh- I should tell you how we got the opportunity because it's, it's one of those lessons I learned very young. Um, down at the, during the course of my apprenticeship, the, the British Union actually put a picket line on like a, a power station in Poolbeg in Dublin and rings in. Because this German model had come to do all the work, you know. And there was plenty of unemployment in Dublin in the, in the early 80s. Uh, so the brickies put the picket line on and said there was plenty of brickies in Dublin. And we, we, my uncle Bill was part of that. And so there was a negotiated settlement that half the brickies, would, there was two shutdowns happening one after the other. Uh, the, so the compromise was that the locals would get 50% this time and get the full job next time. So I had the, I had the, as a young apprentice, I had the opportunity to experience what it is to lay refactory bricks and to work in boilers and furnaces and things like that, you know. So I also worked on the the, uh, the Irish Glass Bottle Company in Ringsend too. So I had that insight, but that was a lesson, you know, that we learned fairly early. And again, through discussion and that oral history about standing up and defending your patch, uh, I wouldn't have got the opportunity of uh, becoming a sort of a refactory bricklayer without those pickets mm. on Poolbeg Station in the early, probably be, would have been 80, 81, was actually 81 at the time. So um, so you can see the benefits of union intervention. And, uh, you know, if you did nothing, you'd get nothing. So, you know, this is why... This state of struggle there that we, and if you don't fight, you lose. It's just always resonated with me, you know. Now, refractory work is fundamentally different uh, from laying bricks on villa housing or fences or even factories. Maybe if people uh, are probably not very knowledgeable about that, maybe you could just outline what refractory work is, the conditions you do the refractory work in and uh, why it is uh, actually one of the areas which despite all the deindustrialization of the, Victor- uh, the Victorian Australian economies, there's still, there's still refractory work. Not all the time but it comes around constantly and the, trying to maintain the skilled Workers in that sector is a very hard thing to do. Well, in 1990, there was there was a lot of industry. You know, we, we very much had the car industry. You know, and that that used to keep. There was a lot of maintenance involved in that. As far as refactory goes, the furnace is there in Toyota and places like that. And uh, but Downland's, I suppose, possible is a good example because in 1990, you actually had four furnaces on the go. You know, they're fully tuned up and producing glass bottles but I think for many many years and I think there's only two going now at the moment and as I think there's been two going for a long long time but yeah now in 1991 the, the glass um, uh, 
So basically what you do is you have a certain amount of, of, of recyclable glass, but mostly it's silica that you put through the furnace and then you melt it. And um, so your refactory bricks are actually lined right, completely right around very thick walls around the furnace. So that can obviously cope with the temperatures involved in, in melting silica to make glass. So, I mean... At the back of the bricks is you got a steel structure that holds it up, but obviously the steel has to be protected from the the heat. So it's it's um, it's protected by you know fairly thick um, refractory material, and or then it's, or it's going to melt like the world. Oh, yeah, that's indeed, indeed. And and then you've got after the so refractory bricks in between the refractory bricks and the steel, you got the insulation bricks. You know. So and then you got the you got the, the the scariest part is the crown on top the roof of what we call the crown and um, you know again that has you know very large brick headers arch a series of arches and um, slows and sharps we call them the, the bricks the K bricks and um, and then again once that's laid then you have the your insulation bricks and then you have your blankets insulation blankets on top you know so. They last, uh, in the old days, they used to last about 10 years before you had to reline them because obviously the heat eats away at the brickwork over time. But now with sort of increased uh, better maintenance and also better materials, you tend to get, and Pilkington, Pilkington must be due soon because um, we did that in two t- um, yeah, t- 2008. So, yeah, that'll, be, that'll have to be ready if it's... Um, so about 15 years they'll get out of a glass tank now. They'll have to overcoat it, uh, bef- you know, a year or two before the main rebuild, but which they do. But um, they're, throwing, they're throwing, obviously, the money involved, uh, they try and stretch it out for as long as possible. You know. But I was lucky enough to get um, to get a job uh, down there at the... You know, at Spotswood in 1991, so, so it was true. The money was good. Uh, the hours were long, of course. Only shut down 12-hour shifts uh, during the demo, and then there was 10-hour shifts during the, the rebuild. You know, it was dirty. It's dirty, dusty walk. Um, when you have to, because the brickies were doing the demolition of it, you have to tear it down before you rebuild it. The, the, the brick walk when you're rebuilding is nice and clean, but um, I don't think the silica, the silica bricks, I don't I think it does too much for the lungs, but uh, the refractory dust and the slag and all that yeah. chrome, chrome was never good for the body either. So these are all the chemicals you'll probably see, and um, you know that you get exposed to along the way. Never, not to mention the asbestos too. That there was a huge issue in the refractory sector. And uh, it's not exactly cool in there, is it? When you first go in to do the demo? No, when you go to do the demo first, is you, you knock a few holes in the wall and you you get your fans in to try and cool things down a little bit quicker. It takes days to cool down. You know? In the process, you're also pushing the dust around. Oh, yeah, it's very dusty. It is, it is a very dusty situation. A lot, a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of factory uh, workers, brickies and brickies labourers and uh, have lung issues along the way. I, had, I mean, that the high temperatures too uh, isn't good for the heart, you know. Uh, and, I mean, the, the maintenance brickies uh, are, sort of get exposed to very high temperatures if they're actually working in the facility and maintaining it day to day, you know. 
So there, there are all the, uh, the challenges, you know. Well, having done a, a little bit of time in the refractory, down at Esso in Western Port and so on, I know exactly, even though I was on a somewhat smaller scale, I understand exactly what you're saying and it is a very, very different uh, workplace compared to straight up new construction. You have to be very particular. Uh, the, the tolerance is associated with brickwork in the refractory sector, nothing like what you see outside. Um, because again, you, you, you can't have any pinholes in, the, in your joints. I mean, it just gobble up the heat, will gobble up the joints and, and start attacking the bricks and, and lead to, you know, lead to, lead to cracking and that. And, and, and so every, everything, the quality of workmanship has to be, you know, it's much higher. And, uh, and you, have to, you have to take your time, you've got to do it right. And, um, it's not the emphasis is not on, on the, you know getting your towers and bricks in a day it's not that it's, it's a slower more methodical but more precise way of working and it takes place all over Australia it, it does and, and many many workers live like gypsies you know travelling from job to job now you travelled around a bit but uh, basically as an official because wasn't too long after all this little experience that uh, you became an official of the VOBs. Yeah, well, I, I was never an official of the VOBs, but I was an official of the VSBTU. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Technically correct. What happened is um, in the, the late 80s, the, the union decided, and the Brickies was probably more financially sound and probably any of those you know, what they had the brick, the, the plasters, two plasters unions, the solid and fibrous plasters, and they had the slater and thorus. And for many years, the the bricklayers union was very sound financial. If you talk to the older fellas that were involved, you know, they had a bit of money uh, uh, in reserves, you know. And then, of course, with all this talk about amalgamations and people were jockeying for different spots and looking to the future and what needed to be done. They just Brickies decided to join in with plasters and and the Slater and Tylers and basically build the building with their money, with the bricklayers' money, and basically the, the other unions would become tenants. You know, that was the plan, I believe, at the time. Uh, and I believe the building cost about three million to build in the late eighties. You know, and, and there was some discussion about the nature of the building. You know, and the Cast panels on the on the bricks and that, and um, but it's fairly fair. It's fair to say that things were overstretched financially, and um, in the end, in nineteen ninety, around nineteen ninety one, ninety two, it was actually sold for half the price that it that it, that it cost to build. But the Victorian Boy Scouts actually bought the building in Barry Street in Carlton. And Barry Street and Carlton, right next, beside next to the, the old FEDFA, F-E-D-F-A you know. So yeah, so there was a bit of controversy at the time, you know. There was a, there was a few things happening. There was a few things happening internally with the union, you know. Uh, I was still a shoppy at the time, the OHS repping. So actually, after that particular job, I got um, after Spotswood, I was lucky enough to basically see. The worst of the recession, I, I had a job for a year and a half with uh, called, uh, a fellow called Rex McCorkle. 
And it was it inter- it was oh, interesting. Yes. It was com- uh, McCorkle Construction. I didn't know at the time, but Rex was the Rex was president of the NBA when he when he when he heard me. <laughs> he didn't know much about me, and I didn't know much about him. But I've got to say, you know, he, I, uh, he did come up to me one day. Uh, we were walking in Sydenham. You didn't see him too much on the job. Uh, the, it must have been, this would have been 1993 at the time. Uh, and uh, I was coming, driving all the way from Bayswater, you know. And, uh, you come up and you see, he said, Virgil, I, I do appreciate, I hear you come from Bayswater. I said, that's right, Rex. He says, it's a long way. He said, uh, I appreciate you coming here. <laughs> Well, the way it is, the last year I said, Rexy, I appreciate having a job. So if I've got to do a bit of travelling, you know, so be it, you know. So, um, but, we, you know, we, we got on reasonably well, and he, he always, he always, uh, he paid us right. And um, and the reason why he had his own bricklayers, he had a falling out with the Brickies Union, which I didn't know about. Uh, not so much with the Brickies Union, but a very bit of struggle with a particular a subcontract bricklaying company that sort of left a bad taste and he decided in his wisdom that from here on in maybe it would be better. Well, the thing was, of course... To have his own direct employees as bricklayers and he made that decision. Because there was that whole problem with the uh, British Union and the major subcontractors group and how all that worked in terms of who got work and who didn't get work and that's a story all of its own and there, are, there are still people around who were alive and participating in all of that so perhaps we won't go there except just a comment on the fact that the industry was a very different place in yes. the even in the 80s and into the 90s but the nineties was when things got tipped upside down, and it, uh, yeah. it major is. contractors' arrangement mm. inverted commas came to an end. It certainly did. Uh, it was quite peculiar in many ways, and, and you're right to say that even today, and we're talking about forty years on. Um, some things are best left unsaid in relation to how things got priced around the city in particular. But it's fair to say that the, uh, the subcontract companies, there's about 40 of them, major subcontractors association, it's fair to say they were very organised. Yes. And um, they, had, um, they actually had their offices inside the union office. Um, the probably the most successful bricklaying employer, you know, it's an historical fact that the most successful bricklaying employer was a member of the bricklayers' executive of the union. Uh, so it was, um, it's a peculiar way of organising that you'd, you'd organise the union through organising subcontractors. Um, and I remember one. I was a little bit naive at the time. I was only I was only young, but nevertheless, I, I had a very interesting question at a branch meeting one night. I said, um, "I said, why don't we have shop stewards meetings 
said, the other unions have monthly shop stewards meetings. Now that we're with the Blasters Union and the Slaters and Doors, you think that it might be an idea that we could come together and have a shop stewards meeting once a month in line with what other unions do in the industry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that point, they gave you the sign of, of the cross and uh, tried to st- bang it through your heart. Well, you know, you got to understand that this was the Melbourne Lodge meeting. Yes. That took place on a quarterly basis, uh, four meetings a year. And uh, there was no history of um, shop stewards meeting in the Bricklayers Union, you know, for a hundred and... 60 years or so, yeah. So, anyway, still to this day, there was no such thing as shop stewards meetings at the Bricklayers Union, or even the VSBTU. So, anyway, as a young, rebellious bricklayer, who was saved from all that history and the traditions of, uh, you know, very much influenced by the writings and the, and the life of uh, Connolly and, and Larkin, when it came to the crunch in the Bricklayers Union, we basically had, we actually had only two ways we could go. There wasn't any other options. And we could go with the AWU, and find me at the time, or we could go with the CFMU. They were the two choices that we had. And those choices were dictated by the policy of the trade union movement as written, interpreted and enforced by the ACTU with the assistance of the then Labor government. And it didn't help the fact that we were broke. And that, you know, from being probably one of the senior parties in that relationship in the VSBTU, we became the problem child. That had to be subsidised by the others, particularly with the, the with the the, the, the fibrous union people like uh, you know Webby and, and uh, Greg, um, the uh, you know, Rexy and, and Fozzy were involved at the time. Uh, you know they they, they they put their hand in the pocket of the union and they 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 gave the Brickies union a few bob to keep us going. You know that's just another historical fact that people may not be aware of. And part of, as we noted before, part of the reason why they were in financial trouble was the cost of that flash building in Barry Street, mm. where to show the world that uh, precast concrete wasn't uh, necessarily the best uh, product, they decided to put bricks in steel frames and put them up as panels. Yeah, but the, the, the biggest, yeah, you're right, and, and that was an interesting choice. Um, it turned out to be a very bad choice. wasn't a good look. But, I mean, in fairness, they, they, were, they, weren't little, they weren't little biscuits. I think they were full bricks in those yes, panels. Correct. And I think they may have been laid by bricklayers. So yes, they were. In, 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 I think a fella called Noel McCabe, might have, uh, who was a bricklayer himself, might have had a bit of work to do with that. Um, so... That that's that's where we were. That's where we were left. You know, we had a very big building. Be wary of big buildings when it comes to, to trade unions. You know, and uh, and big plants. Uh, unfortunately, it was it was a situation where the recession came. People weren't paying their union dues and because they're out of work. And interest rates were seventeen percent, and right. the brickies borrowed money from that's the right. bank to build it. 
Yeah, well, the Commonwealth Bank wanted their money back. <laughs> as usual as, with banks. As they do. So, here we are. We're in the uh, early 90s. Amalgamations are going off right across uh, the trade union movement. And 30 years later, we're looking at it and going, what the hell? But at that time, that was the salvation in a recession. The Labor government was pushing hard. The ACTU had a view as to how bigger it would be better. And Brickies had to make a decision. How did that turn out? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. In Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England, or Fiji We all of us are workers, united we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place we hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains And break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed Our builders' labour is a name to make a man proud